Let's turn in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We will be in verses 19 through 22 this morning. We are essentially picking up the second part of what is really one text that we began last week. This section really begins, the section that tightly fits together begins in verse 11 of chapter 2 and goes through the end of the chapter. But that is too much, or was too much, at least for me, to do justice uh, to it last week. And so I didn't even try. We, we got to a certain point. Uh, it had been talking about how most of the people at the church in Ephesus were Gentiles. And they had no covenant claim on the true God or on his Messiah. They had no part in his covenant people, Israel. They were far off, alienated, strangers, without hope, without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, these who have believed in Christ Jesus, they have been brought near. They have been given full access to the Father by one Spirit. Uh, let me read verses 11 through 18 to remind you what we just, just covered last week. Remind you that Jew and Gentile alike in Christ have peace with God through the cross. Paul wrote, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, that is Jew and Gentile, both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came. And preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. That's as far as we got last week. There was a lot there. But if you can, especially if you were with us last week, if you can bring back to your mind at least the main themes from last week, um, that will help you as we flow right into the rest of what Paul has to say now. Now, starting in verse 19, he goes back to what he said, particularly in verse 12, about the former condition of these Gentiles. Now that he says they have peace with God through Jesus Christ crucified, it's not just that they have peace with God and access to him in some vague way. They have everything and more that they used to lack. In relation to God and his covenants and his people and his, God's presence among them. So, um, and this is shortened from the title I sent out earlier in the week. Uh, shortened a little bit. But I'm titling the sermon this morning, God's Holy Nation, Household, and Temple. 
God's holy nation, household, and temple. Let's read verses 19 through 22. Paul picks up here in verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, that is in the Lord Jesus, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Well, the big idea is that now in Christ... Gentiles are equally part of God's holy nation, household, and temple. Now in Christ, Gentiles are equally part of God's holy nation, household, and temple. As we look at the content of the text here, and and you're following along in your handout, that may help as well. Now in Christ, first of all, verse 19, the beginning. Now in Christ, Gentiles are equal citizens. Citizens of God's holy covenant nation. Remember what he said in verse 12. You need to see how he uses exact wording to put an equal sign there. To show you what he's talking about. Verse 12 he had said, remember that you were at that time, before Christ, uh, you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth or the citizenship, the politeus, of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. Having no hope and without God in the world. We'll get there too. So in contrast to verse 12, he says, where he said, you were alienated from the, the politeus, the citizenship, the commonwealth of Israel. He says, you are no longer strangers and aliens. Alien, you're no longer aliens from what? From the citizenship or commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. Now he says you're no longer strangers, verse 19. No longer strangers to what? You're no longer strangers to the covenants of promise. But you are, and this is a word that is, uh, it has the same root in Greek as that word for commonwealth or citizenship in verse 12. But you are fellow citizens. So you are fellows in the commonwealth is the idea. You are fellow citizens with the saints. You know, under the old covenant, who were the saints? Who were the holy ones? They were those under the old covenant with God. And particularly, if, uh, of course, if you go deeper, you talk about the true saints, the true Israel. It was those who actually believed God's promises, not just an outward thing. But true saints, by and large, in Old Testament times were incorporated into ethnic and religious Israel. They were part of the commonwealth of Israel, but the Gentiles, by and large, were cut off from that. Unless maybe they became proselytes, the men got circumcised, and so on. Um, They could come into Israel that way and be naturalized, you might say. But verse 19 is saying now, in Christ, and remember... What we just read in verse 15, Christ has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, between circumcised and uncircumcised, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. So this is also reflecting on the result of all that still. 
Now you're no longer strangers and aliens to the citizenship of Israel and the uh, the covenants of promise, but you are fellow citizens with God's holy ones, with his saints. It is the commonwealth, the citizenship of God's Israel, which now belongs to believing Gentiles. Now, this is not Old Covenant Israel. We just heard that Old Covenant Israel is no longer a thing with its ordinances and all that was attached to that. There is now a new covenant Israel through the cross. But God still has an Israel, a holy special people. And the Jews still have that if they believe in their Messiah. But now the Gentiles also are part of it. It is the commonwealth, the citizenship of God's Israel, which now belongs to believing Gentiles. They are just as sanctified, just as holy saints, as our Jewish believers. And that was a big issue in the first century, wasn't it? Okay, maybe you believe in our Messiah, you Gentiles, but this is just like when some of you Gentiles would stand on the outskirts of the synagogue and you were God-fearers, but you didn't come all the way. You were... You were halfway in, but some people in Paul's day claiming to be Jewish Christians would say, but you still need to be circumcised to really be part of God's covenants and his holy people. And Paul says, no, that all got taken away at the cross. And furthermore, of course, Paul has said it has always been by faith alone, by God's grace alone, that a man is justified before God. But here he's focusing on membership, citizenship in Israel. As Paul Gardner says in his commentaries, you know, what's the point of citizenship here? Well, he says citizens have rights. Citizens under God's rule jointly share in the covenant promises. They are led by the same king. They share this great inheritance that belongs to God's people. It also means, as we shall see later, that they have responsibilities. In the past, Israel had many defined privileges in her special relationship with the Lord. These are now the possession of all God's people who are now defined as those who are part of the one body in Christ. Thinking of citizenship for Gentiles now, um, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, we no longer live on a passport, but we really have our birth certificates. We really do belong. So we are no longer aliens to the citizenship, the commonwealth of Israel, and we're no longer strangers to the covenants of promise. The covenants to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which served and pointed forward to the the promised Messiah, the promise of Messiah. All the covenants that, that, that served and pointed forward to God's promise of a Savior, those have all been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, And if you are in Jesus Christ, you are certainly partakers in that promise. Partakers then in God's covenants. And you are in a covenant relationship with God. Jesus has done all that's necessary to bring you into covenant with God. Galatians 3, 26-29. For in Christ Jesus, Paul said, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ... There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, 
that if you if you belong to Christ, that is, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Abraham's covenant, though it used to be have nothing to do with you, now it has everything to do with you because you're in Christ who inherits Abraham's promises. Romans 4, Paul remarks that Abraham believed before he was circumcised so that he would be the father of all who believe, whether they are circumcised or not. And in that context, Romans 4, verse 13, Paul writes, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Verse 16, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, all Abraham's offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, those in Judaism, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. So now in Christ, Gentiles are equal citizens of God's holy covenant nation. And the new covenant, which is a covenant of grace, sums up everything toward which God's covenants ever pointed. It is the fulfillment of everything. You get everything in the new covenant in Christ Jesus. Obviously, there's so many more scriptures we could tie together here. We don't have time. But next... Next part of verse 19, we see that now in Christ, Gentiles are equal members of God's household. Equal members of God's household. This is even more warm and intimate, isn't it? Than being a citizen. You can be a citizen, a subject of a king. That's not the same thing as being the king's family. Paul has already said in Ephesians, we have been adopted as sons. We are God's children and heirs. And so, indeed, we are members of his household. So, whereas before, verse 12, we had no hope and we were without God in the world. Now, verse 19, we are members of the household of God. Now, there's something that you really have to, I really have to tell you about. um, Because it's important, but it, you know, it's just going to show up in the Greek, not English, but Paul is intentionally using all sorts of words here that are all built on the same root. Uh, let me read how Harry F. Richard says this. Indeed, Paul's language is emphatic. In verses 19 through 22, he uses six household terms derived from the same Greek root, oikos. I think now that's like a Greek yogurt out there, right? Oikos. That means house. <laughs> house or household. It can mean the structure or the family. And Paul uses it both ways as we go through here. Um, He uses six household terms derived from the same Greek root, oikos. Aliens means you're not part of it. (laughs) Members of household, built on, building, built together, and dwelling. So you don't see that in English, but he's intentionally reusing all these house words or household words. There could scarcely be stronger evidence of the church as God's family than this, especially as the root word can mean both family and building. End of quote. Also, it's been pointed out before that 
maybe we, you know, different people have different things come to, into their heads when they think of a household and the benefits of being part of a household. But there were a lot of benefits in the, the thinking of the time and the culture of the time being part of a household. Um, love, yes. Uh, belonging, yes. But, but maybe stronger than sometimes it is today. Uh, someone said, uh, in the Roman world, to be a member of a household meant refuge and protection at least as much as the master was able to provide. It also meant identity and gave the security that comes with a sense of belonging. To be part of a household means there's a head of household who's providing for you, who's protecting you, um, in whose name you have a strong sense of identity and purpose. And it's obvious who that is here, right? It's God the Father. He's your father. You're part of his household. You have everything you could ever want. You're part of the family. Again, moving on rather quickly, verses 20 through 22. Now in Christ, Gentiles are equal parts of God's holy temple. So we're equal citizens of God's holy covenant nation. We are equal members of God's household. But here's where it might sound strange at first. We are equal parts, building blocks, as we'll say, of God's holy temple. You see that if you, if you put it all together, of course, that it says in verse 21 um, what kind of a building this is. It starts out by using building terms and saying we're being built together. But into what? Well, it's going to say, verse 21, into a holy temple in the Lord. And it restates it. In the next verse, we are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The word that even was used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament as God's dwelling place in heaven, for instance. (laughs) But now we are God's dwelling place and God's temple. But starting where Paul starts in, in verse 20, first of all, he says the apostles and prophets are this temple's foundation. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now, as as we look at this text, uh, there are other things which Paul doesn't intend to cover in this text so much. Like the fact that even believers under the old covenant, in a sense, are uh, partake of the same grace that the church does now. So in a sense, they're part of the, the church across time. That's true. But Paul's particularly focusing on the church under the new covenant as it is now, based on the death and resurrection of Christ. Um, and he says the foundation of the New Testament, the new covenant church, are the apostles and prophets. And it's, it's, very, um, it's very widely un- understood and accepted that the prophets here are New Testament prophets. And I think the, the whole context of Ephesians and how Paul speaks about the apostles and prophets tells us that. Uh, First of all, the order is not the prophets and apostles. This might be a little hint. It's not prophets and apostles, prophets coming before apostles in the Old Testament. It's the apostles and prophets. And that lines up with how Paul speaks like in 1 Corinthians 12 of, of how God has put in the church first apostles, then prophets, then other kinds of gifts. But then in Ephesians 3, 5, Paul uses this same sort of phrase 
of God's holy apostles and prophets where it can never mean the Old Testament prophets. Ephesians 3, verse 5, he says, well, I'll back up to verse 4. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So the other place in Ephesians where Paul uses the same basic phrase, the apostles and prophets, he's clearly talking about the New Testament apostles and prophets because they're getting revelation that was never made known to the sons of men, including the Old Testament prophets, in the same way it's being made known now. Likewise, in Ephesians 4.11, it's the exalted Christ, once he died and rose again and ascended to heaven, it's Christ exalted who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, etc. Now, uh, last week in the afternoon, we talked about New Testament prophets, so I'm not going to go on that whole expedition now. Uh, If you need to, go back and listen to that. Um, New Testament prophets were... Um, very much like Old Testament prophets, they got messages directly from God and they, and they were responsible to communicate them perfectly. Uh, there, was, there were no prophecies that they might get wrong and still be a true prophet. But um, the apostles and prophets were part of the foundation stage of the New Testament church. And we have, we have well, one of the big results of that in our day, when we do not have apostles and prophets, is that we have the New Testament canon, the New Testament scripture written by New Testament apostles and prophets. Anyone who wrote scripture had to be a prophet because they were getting it directly from God. Luke was a prophet. He was not an apostle, but he was a prophet, right? Mark was a prophet. Um, You think of Jude, the brother of the Lord, James, the brother of the Lord, etc., So, as John Stott put it, in practical terms, this means that the church is built on the New Testament scriptures. This is an implication, he's saying. They are the church's foundation documents. And just as a foundation cannot be tampered with once it has been laid and the superstructure is being built upon it, so the New Testament foundation of the church is inviolable and cannot be changed by any additions, subtractions, or modifications offered by teachers who claim to be apostles or prophets today. What do we have that is the sure word of God given through the apostles and prophets? Well, it's right here. It's right here. But with the apostles and prophets as the foundation, and, and there's an aspect of that uh, that uh, is not just about their persons, but their teaching. Uh, their teaching about Christ, <laughs> But now it says in verse 20, Christ Jesus himself is this temple's cornerstone. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. A cornerstone was very important in great buildings of the time. As Harry F. Richard says, this reflected current building practice in which the laying of the cornerstone marks the beginning of the foundation. The builder could then use it, the cornerstone, to determine the lie or line of the building. Everything had to line up with the cornerstone. 
Not only does the chief cornerstone assure the security of the building's base, it determines its shape and growing progress. What a glorious imagery of Christ, he says. So the most significant part of the temple in Jerusalem was its foundation stones, including the cornerstone. In fact, in the early 1990s, archaeologists discovered the foundation stones, five enormous stones that helped form the foundation of the Jerusalem temple. And uh, elsewhere, I've read this included the cornerstone. The largest stone measures 55 feet long, 11 feet high, 14 feet wide, and it's estimated to weigh 570 tons. That's a rock. And that's Christ Jesus in a picture. This temple is stable. And everything is built off of Jesus Christ, lines up with him. Without Jesus Christ, there is no temple. There is no church. But Paul is not just thinking of a useful figure of speech here on the fly. Oh, Jesus is like a cornerstone, isn't he? I just thought of this. No. This is the Old Testament. It's this image of the Messiah, first of all, as the Lord himself, Yahweh himself, as a stone of stumbling, which will cause Israel to trip over him. (laughs) And then the Messiah as the cornerstone. This is embedded in the Old Testament. And Jesus and the apostles referred to it a lot. Harry F. Richard again, the picture here is of a stone chosen by God, but rejected by man, who becomes the means either of salvation to those who believe or of destruction to those who reject the Messiah. Psalm 118, 22-26. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. That's what it's talking about. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us. Hosanna, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. You go to Isaiah chapter 8, starting in verse 11. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Isaiah 28, then uh, turn to Isaiah 28 with me. Isaiah 28, 16. I want you to see this. This is the one place in the Greek Old Testament where Paul's term for cornerstone shows up. Isaiah 28, 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste or... As uh, we would translate the Greek Old Testament here, the one who trusts will certainly not be disgraced. But before we move on, notice Paul is interpreting this cornerstone 
this foundation stone as the foundation stone, the cornerstone of the New Testament church. But what does this passage say? Where does this passage say this cornerstone is laid? Of what is it the foundation? Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone. A tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. So again, just as the rest of the New Testament assumes, Isaiah's prophecies of redeemed Zion are about what we know as the church of Jesus Christ. There is a new covenant Israel, a redeemed and purified Zion, which is now made up only of believers, but now it's Jew and Gentile alike. And Jesus Christ is the foundation and cornerstone of that Zion. Now go to the New Testament, Matthew 21. Jesus told a parable against the Jewish religious leaders who were about to have him killed. He spoke of them as tenants who were leasing a vineyard from a great landowner. And he talked about how the landowner sent his servants one after another only to have the servants abused and murdered. Finally, the landowner sent his son saying they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said, this is the heir. Let's kill him so we can have the vineyard. And Jesus, of course, is saying this is what these leaders of Israel are doing as he speaks. The the vineyard doesn't belong to them. Israel doesn't belong to them. But when their Messiah comes, God's son comes, they're going to murder him because they want the vineyard for themselves. So verse 42 of Matthew 21 Jesus said to them, have you never read it in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. That's Psalm 118, which we already read. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. That's Jesus' way of referring to the ideas in Isaiah 8 that we read. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. Lastly, go to Acts 4. Acts 4. Verse 8. Peter, now that Peter and John have been hauled in before the same people who murdered Jesus same elders of the people, the priests and and such, because they healed a crippled man in the name of Jesus. Verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him... This man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Well, in a moment, I'm not going there now, but in a moment we will see how the same Apostle Peter pulls together the scriptural language of Christ as the rock of stumbling and yet the cornerstone of a new holy temple, of a new holy priesthood, of a new holy nation. We'll get there. But let's just quickly remember what Paul has just said back in Ephesians, Ephesians 2. 
What has Paul just said about Christ as bringing unity? He already said Christ brought unity between Jew and Gentile and the body of Christ by making peace. For he himself is our peace, verse 14 of Ephesians 2. He himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God and one body to the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So as it has been said, Christ our peace produces a real unity, and Christ our cornerstone a firm unity. We are all together in the same body of Christ, and we really are one. First of all, because we have peace with God and then with each other through the cross. But there's also stability here. God, the foundation of God's people will not be moved. Jesus is the cornerstone. It's not that we have unity now, which may someday be blown away. We all are on a solid foundation, Jesus Christ. He will not let his people be torn apart in the end. There is and there will be unity in his church. We can have security in that. Now, verses 20 through 21, while we're looking at this temple of which we are all parts in Christ's body, Third, under that, all Christians together are this temple's building blocks. Verse 20 said, we are built on this foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom, in Christ Jesus, the whole structure being joined together, speaking of tight unity, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. A holy temple. And this term for temple usually refers not just to the whole temple complex with its courts and everything. It's the word for the inner sanctuary, for the central building where God himself dwells. It's not just that we're at the outer fringes of the temple. We are all part of the very place where God himself has his throne and his home. We are the sanctuary, as some translations have it here. We are a holy temple in the Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ made full atonement in the temple, which is his body, his flesh. John 2 tells us that. In fact, it's in the context of Jesus having zeal for God's house, consuming him. The first time he drove out the money changers from the temple. And he gets challenged by the Jewish religious leaders in John chapter 2. What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But the Apostle John writes, But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So the final atoning sacrifice has happened in the temple, which is Christ's physical body, his flesh. 
But because of that, now the church is Christ's body, as Paul has said in Ephesians, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, sent by Christ from heaven. And as the dwelling place of God, we're dwelling in God the Father's household, in this union with God the Son, and we're filled with the glorious presence of God the Spirit, so we are God's temple. We are God's dwelling place, the place where we can see him face to face. He dwells among us. This, of course, will have even further ramifications in our experience when we are perfect one day, when we see God face to face in a new way. But even now, we are God's temple. 1 Corinthians 3, Paul said to the church at Corinth, Speaking of himself and Apollos and other ministers like that, he said, we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Down in verse 16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Or 2 Corinthians 6.16, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, quoting the Old Testament. A man named G.K. Beale, who has written a lot of stuff about this theme of the temple in scripture. He says, Paul indeed believes not merely that the church is like the temple, but that it is the actual beginning fulfillment of the Latter-day Temple, uh, Latter-day Temple prophecies from the Old Testament. As a result of Christ's resurrection, the spirit continued building the end time temple, the building materials of which are God's people, thus extending the temple into the new creation in the new age. This building process will culminate in the eternal new heavens and earth as a paradisal city temple. That's what we have pictured, by the way, at the end of the book of the Revelation. But notice the way Paul talks about it. It's not that the temple is already finished. He says the temple building is in progress. And you've been built into it now and others are being built into it. And from one angle, what is this whole time between Christ's first and second coming about? It's about building the temple. Incorporating more and more and more living stones into the temple. That's what this is about. And fashioning us the way God would have us to fit in his temple. Exactly where he wants us, as he wants us. And fashioned into the the image of Christ, who is the cornerstone. This place where God dwells, Paul Gardner writes, is growing. It will continue to grow numerically in spiritual depth and across the nations until Christ returns. And while this happens, we find this to be the most wonderful home built firmly on a sure foundation. It is a place of great unity. We're joined together and peace and where the love of God in Christ is best experienced and known. End of quote. Now I'm going to show you what Peter said further in 1 Peter. 
Everything in 1 Peter lets you know that he's speaking mostly to Gentiles who have believed. They are people who used to be involved in debauchery with their neighbors. Now they're no longer involved in that. They received uh, evil customs from their forefathers. They were idolaters before. Now they worship Christ. And yet, Peter addresses them as God's chosen people. He calls them the dispersion, just like the Jews would have been spoken of. But they are the true dispersion. 1 Peter 1.1 1, 1. But 1 Peter 2, verse 4, he says, As you come to Christ, to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race. Now, quoting what God told Israel at Sinai, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now we have to cover verse 22 to finish up this chapter. And verse 22 restates everything that's been said, but it also says that the Holy Spirit is this temple's divine resident. In him, in Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Even as the Lord encouraged the returned exiles of Judah in building their second temple, he told them way back then of a greater temple and a greater day for Zion when he would dwell in their midst as never before. Haggai 2, I won't read all this, you have the full... um, Uh, The full reference is in your notes. But in Haggai 2, God encourages them to work, even though some of them had seen the temple that Solomon built and how glorious it was, and this one doesn't compare. But he says, work, for I am with you. And then he says, once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. Haggai 2, 7, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, And I will fill this house, this temple, with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Zechariah 2, prophet at the same time period. Verse 10, sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. In Zechariah 6, I'm reading from the Lexham English Bible because it translates it the best, I think. Zechariah 6, I'll summarize some of this. God tells the prophet to make a crown and put it on the head of a high priest named Jehozadak. And God says, I'm giving you a picture of the Messiah, who I'm calling the branch. Look, here is a man whose name is Branch. 
Zechariah 6, 12. And from his place he will sprout, and he will build the temple of Yahweh. And he will build the temple of Yahweh, and he will bear majesty, and will sit and rule on his throne. And he shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two of them. It also says, verse 15, And those who are far off will come and build the temple of Yahweh. The far off Gentiles. And you will know that Yahweh of hosts has sent me to you. So doesn't it make sense that Jesus would speak of his assembly, his church, but in the same breath, Matthew 16 says, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Well, you've been patient. We've gotten through the the content of the text. The big idea is that now in Christ, Gentiles are equally part of God's holy nation, household, and temple. But how do we respond to this text? Many ways. In one sense, I could just say, well, wait for the rest of Ephesians, because it's all built on this, but I won't just say that. There are ways we can already respond to it. Three ways I'm going to point out. First of all, how do we respond? Honor each saint as such. The the first way to respond is to honor each saint as such, as being a saint. We are all holy ones, saints together. We are all fellow citizens with the saints. Not even the former distinctions under the old covenant matter any longer. Things like circumcision and uncircumcision, Jew and Gentile. Much less should other distinctions matter to us. We are one new man in Christ. We have different functions as different parts of Christ's body, but we have equal citizenship, equal rights and privileges. We have an equal share in Christ's inheritance and eternal life. In the priesthood, in the kingdom, we are all indwelt by the temple presence of God's spirit. Galatians 3, 27 through 28 again, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, those social classes and economic differences. There is no male and female. Gender does not make you a first or second class Christian. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Or Colossians 3.11. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, that is even, okay, that person's from a a people group, a nation that's really backward. (laughs) That's what that, that was, barbarians and Scythians. Uneducated barbarians or even the Scythians, the wild men from the north. Those distinctions shouldn't matter either, what nation we're from. There is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. You can't come into church, Paul says, and the masters make the slaves sit separately. (laughs) But Christ is all and in all. So honor each saint as such. This is a very broad principle, but consider a few Scriptural exhortations in regard to this. Romans twelve fifteen through 16 applying this principle. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. 
Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Well, spending too much time with those people in the church would be a little beneath me. Or listening to them too much, that'd be a waste of my time. No. They're all saints. The humblest saint now might be among the most glorious beings you meet in the next world. The most glorious parts of God's eternal temple. We're all saints. We have different functions in the church, sure. But that means nothing as to our status in Christ. Give the children who believe in Christ your time. Give the old, older saints, maybe those who can't come, who are in the care center. Give them your attention, your honor. And those who are your age, but, but you're like, well, they're so different from my background. And I don't think they have much in common. What? There's something we have in common that brought us all together here, isn't there? Honor each saint as such. Or Philippians 2, 1 through 4. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Second way to respond that we're covering today would be to honor the holy people above our earthly ties. To honor the holy people above our earthly ties. Something that's holy is set apart and above the common. It's in a category all by itself. We each have earthly ties and responsibilities in this life, and we ought to be good members of our our own households. One who does not provide for his household is worse than an unbeliever, Paul says. We ought to be good members of our own households, good citizens of our nations. And yet, while not neglecting our duties there, we ought to place an even higher value on God's holy nation and God's household. I don't like to talk about myself from the pulpit, but I'll make an exception to make a point. I am an American. And I love my country's heritage and her interests. It would even be good and right to lay down my life in defense of my homeland. That would not be a waste. Treason to the Constitution of these United States is unthinkable to me. I've sworn an oath before even in service to the federal government at one point, working in an airport, to defend the Constitution. There's nothing wrong with that. There's everything right with it. And yet, I am a Christian first. No matter my earthly allegiances, Christ, not Caesar, is Lord of all. Nations rise and fall. And I would weep if this nation fell. But... The church of Jesus Christ is everlasting. So, while on the one hand, patriotism and nationalism don't need to be scary words to us, 
Still, they must never overshadow our loyalty to Christ's church and our love for Christ's church. Now, do some silly people see a conflict here where there is none? Sure. People who might have an axe to grind somewhere else, yeah. But there is an important point here. I have eternal bonds of fellowship with Christians from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. I don't have those same ties, sadly, with most of my own countrymen. So there's levels here. I'll talk about my family. I'm also a hobbaker. That is my earthly family. God has blessed our particular family with a rich heritage. If you have family pride and loyalty, chances are I've probably experienced every bit of that and more. Probably. I am a family historian. I probably have more historical documentation about the Habegger family than any of my near relatives. When I was growing up as one of the younger Habegger cousins, the extended family loved family reunions. We loved being together more than most families did because we didn't fight as much as most families did. We had a history. We had a camaraderie. Back then, especially, a common professed faith that most families never experience. I could take pride in the accomplishments of various members in the family. You know what? Apart from God's grace, I would be a downright snob on behalf of my family. I would. I used to be. Through hard providences and human sin, God has been good to reveal to my family, my extended family, that we aren't all we might have thought we were in the past. But I still love my natural family dearly. And yet, I can truly say that I love God's household more. Can you say that? Thank God that I have natural family who are indeed spiritual family. But even with them, I must first be loyal to my identity and duty as a Christian, even before my identity as a hobbaker. What will my family think? What will Christ think? I love and respect my dad beyond my ability to say. But God is more truly and eternally my father. And that's no disrespect to my earthly dad. My true identity is as God's son, his adopted son. My true inheritance is from God. I'm here in Portland, Oregon to labor with my brothers and sisters in Christ, though that largely cuts me off from my father and mother and brother and sister in Wisconsin. So enough about me. What about you? What about you? What matters more to you, your ethnicity and nationality or citizenship in Zion? Your family and relatives or God's household? Which identity will take precedence in determining where you invest your relationships and who you honor the most? Are you willing to follow the example of Jesus himself? Mark 3, verse 20, speaks of Jesus busy in his earthly ministry, that he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. Jesus and his disciples didn't even have time to eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. Verse 31 of that chapter. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. 
And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Might God equip and call some of you to leave family and homeland to strengthen the church or plant a church in another part of this nation or somewhere even farther away? Faithful lay ministry or vocational ministry, whatever it is. Might God call some of you to a foreign land, a foreign culture? That's not for those super saints out there. If there's more laborers for the harvest field, it's from the church, which is us. Might God call some of you to that? Or perhaps God is calling you now to simply obey him where you are, knowing it will drive a wedge between you and your family. Do you value God's household more? Mark 10, 29 through 30, Jesus gives us a wonderful promise. He said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Last way to respond to this text is to honor the Lord's temple. Honor the Lord's temple. On the negative side, beware of sacrilege. We must not treat Christ's church as a small matter or handle it without regard to God's instructions for his temple. The Old Testament is filled with God's zeal for his temple. He destroyed those who dared to trash the temple and pollute it with idols. He drove out Uzziah with leprosy when, though he was a son of David, the king of Judah, he came in unauthorized to do what only the priests could do in the temple. God drove him out made him a leper to the day of his death. When do we see Jesus become visibly furious and physically violent? When his father's house was made a house of trade and a den of robbers. So we have to take the Apostle Paul seriously when he warns about a fleshly approach to church ministry. We already read this, 1 Corinthians three sixteen. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? He's speaking to the the members of the church plural there in Corinth. You together are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple or brings ruin to it is the idea, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. But on the positive side, we should love the house of God and honor the temple of the Lord. We should delight in our priesthood in that temple Offering up spiritual sacrifices of prayer and praise and good works, as the scripture says. We should never lightly dismiss the Lord's temple convocations, his assemblies on his day. It shouldn't be easy for us to say, eh, that's just temple worship. I can do that any time. I'll do it next Sunday. It shouldn't be a light thing for us. Psalm 84, verses 1 and 2, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! 
My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Verses 10 through 12. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor or grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. We'd better honor the Lord's temple. It will be our eternal honor to be a fixture within that temple. With this I close, Revelation 3. Starting in verse 11, Jesus says to a local church there in Philadelphia, but to all his churches, he says, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, whoever comes by faith, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for reminding us of the glories in which we participate by faith in Christ. Help us to meditate and chew on these things. It was a fire hose of scriptural data at times. Help us to take it in, to soak it in, to soak in it. May it be evidenced in our lives that we were under the sound of this text today. May it be evidenced in our lives this week and how we treat your church, how we treat your saints, how we treat you in whose household we are. Lord, we ask that you would draw more into your household, your holy nation, your temple, even those in our midst who are not yet part of it. Through the gospel, show them that they are unclean and cut off from you outside of Christ, that they need him to wash away their sins by his blood, to give them new hearts, to give them full access and approach to you, whereas before they were under your wrath. Lord, thank you for your word. May we honor it for Jesus' sake. We pray this in his name. Amen.